will tell you this, the stable you see in the nativity scenes, probably it didn't look anything like that. I've heard it said that he was born at the, really in the lower room of a house that that many of the houses that day had a, had a room that was kind of off to the side where they would bring their animals and he was born somewhere like that. Justin Martyr, an early Christian writer, as long, along with another one whose name was Origen, uh, Martyr, he, he was around AD 150, so pretty close to that, that story and, and, and the history of it. He, he thought, and, and Origen did as well, Origen resided in Palestine and one of the writings that you can read of Origen said that in Bethlehem you're shown the cave where he was born and within the cave, the manger where he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. So I've heard it and kind of thought about preaching the two caves on each side of Jesus' life, the cave that he was possibly born in and the cave that he was buried in. Maybe I'll save that for another one. I'm going to start with the clothes that Jesus, he kind of his first set of clothes, those swaddling clothes. Before we end, we'll remind you that when they came to the tomb, his grave clothes lay there in a pile and the napkin that covered his face was neatly wrapped up. He didn't need it anymore. But there's this place, Bethlehem. What's so special about Bethlehem? Why, of all the places that the king of kings could come, why Bethlehem? Maybe I can shed some light on that through some verses in the Bible and putting a couple things together. I think, as we've said often, God doesn't do anything by chance. He doesn't do anything by accident. and He didn't just arbitrarily choose a place. He chose it with a purpose. And so if you will, would you turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 2. Would you let me read it one more time in your presence. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. This was first registered when Quinarius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night and an angel of the Lord peered to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord and this shall be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those in whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven the shepherds said one to another let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened that the Lord hath made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that was told them concerning this child. And all who wondered at what the shepherds had told them, but Mary treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Why Bethlehem? What's so important about Bethlehem? Would you let the Lord speak to you? Father, we thank you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the word we heard this morning. What an incredible conclusion to our Christmas message and Christmas series. And Lord, I thank you for the seasons of life that you have allowed us to walk through. And I pray that we would continue to see that you are helping us grow. I pray tonight that you would once again let your word uh, be seen in its entirety from the front to the back. And would you let us see that you had a purpose for coming to Bethlehem. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. You can be seated. As much can be said in the Bible, the story doesn't start when you first see the story. The birth of Jesus Christ, the start of it is not Luke chapter 2 and those other places. In fact, what a little bit of what I'm going to preach Christmas Day, uh, if I can just give you kind of a brief glimpse, it starts... In Genesis chapter 3, the story of the birth of Jesus starts when God looked at Satan and, and in that form of a serpent and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That promise that one day out of a woman would come the one that would ultimately defeat sin and its effects was right there, if you will. If you can compare Satan and its, and its venom that it has in that serpent. And you know that, that the antidote to venom is what they call antivenom. And if I, if I could just kind of remind you that, that it was going to take a while. It was going to take a, a couple thousand years. But one day that antibody would come. The one that would release man from the effects of sin. It was promised in Genesis chapter 3 and began to go of all the remedies that God could have chosen to come and bring to mankind. He chose the the lineage, if you will, of man. Weaving its way for some 53 generations, according to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 1. From Abraham to David, uh, uh, I think it's 14 generations. Here, let me, let, let's turn there. Let me get it right. Since I obviously got my wrong Napoleon earlier. Let's do this properly. From Abraham to Jesse, 14 years. From David to the time that they went to Babylonian captivity, 14 generations, not years, 14 generations. And from that deportation to Babylon to Jesus' birth, 14 generations. It starts with a man named Abraham that God calls out of his country. Promise him a son even though he was old and had no sons, promised him a great nation. It took a while, but it happened. The little boy, the promise, Isaac. Isaac marries, and they have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's interesting. Jacob's got a lot of problems. If you look at the story and, and really read it, and, and I challenge you, when you read your Bible, especially, you know, you know we, we start looking up at, at, at next year and 
perhaps one of your New Year's resolutions is I want to read the Bible more. Maybe you want to do the bread program, that Bible enriches every day. And, and, and you know, you kind of read a couple chapters each day. So at the end of 365 days, you've read the Bible through. However it is, I challenge you, don't read the Bible as just some dry, archaic book. But read it and watch the emotions and watch the relationships and let it play out, if you will, like a, like a live screen in your mind where you can see how it goes. Jacob was a horrible person. Now he got it honestly. His daddy and mom was a horrible person. You want to talk about dysfunction, they had dysfunction. But the reason Bethlehem is so important, I got to take you back to Jacob. Because Jacob, and, and through his generations, we're going to see two of his future grandsons, one named David, one ultimately named Jesus. They all had three things in common in those li- in their lives, Jacob and David and Jesus. The, the, the commonality between them was this little town called Bethlehem. And so it is that Jacob begins to, you know, you know he, he, he steals the birthright and the blessing from his brother. Of course, that causes great consternation. And, and, and Esau, he, he really just wants to kill Jacob. And so Jacob runs for his life. And runs to his, you know, just just he, he's running. He sees the dream, Jacob's ladder, and God uh, kind of reaffirms the promise that He has for Jacob in his life. And there, you you find he wakes up and he keeps going, and he comes to the land of the people in East. This is Genesis chapter twenty nine. If you want to kind of follow along with me, he 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 he's been running. He hasn't even thought about food and water, and he comes to a well, and he he's he's gonna. Uh, drink from the well and he talks to them a little bit he's asking do you know a man by the name of Laban he's my uncle and I'd really like to connect with whatever family I might have and while he's speaking with those herdsmen that are gathered around that well a young lady walks up by the name of Rachel Rachel is Laban's daughter Rachel was her father's uh, uh, shepherdess if you will and she brings her sheep and Jacob sees Rachel, the daughter of Laban, and, and he, he goes and he helps him water, and then it makes this unique statement. He says, then, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Those two things, I don't quite think they go together, the kissing and the crying, but he was so thankful and so happy to see somebody that he knew, and he fell in love with Rachel at first sight, he was just overwhelmed and, and, and in gratitude, he, he was ecstatic. He wanted to marry Rachel. You know the story, tricked into marrying Leah as well. And though he did not love Leah, Leah gave him six sons. And, and, and Rachel had a, a problem conceiving and she longed for a child. And finally after some, some things went down and some handmaids were given to Jacob, finally Rachel had a little boy, they called his name Joseph. Joseph became again Jacob's pride and joy, you know, the coat of many colors and, and you see all of that. But it was that last child along the way, Jacob is deciding to move back to Canaan. He wants to go back to the land of Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. He's wanting to return and on the way Rachel conceives again and they're about close to Bethlehem and the time of her birth and birthing comes, the labor pains begin and she delivers her second son, 
Benjamin. The labor was too much for Rachel. And in giving birth to that son, she dies. The one that Jacob loves is gone. He mourns for her. He realizes I'll never again hold her face in my hands. I'll never be able to love her. The one I loved is gone. And he begins to tell the story. The Bible says it's something like this. And they journeyed from Bethel. And they were but a little way from Ephrath. And Rachel travailed. She had hard labor. And it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Fear not, you shall have this son also. And it came to pass as her soul was departing for she had died or was dying, that she called his name Benoni, which means the son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which was Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. And that pillar of Rachel uh, is there to this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Beyond the tower of Eder. In the, in the Hebrew uh, language, that Tower of Eder would be called Mig, Migal Eder, which means the Tower of the Flock. Ephrath was a, it means a fruitful place. It means a place of life, which seems ironic because that's where Rachel died. But it was more than just a place where Rachel departed. It became, if you will, a place of new life because there was a son named Benjamin that was born. The prophet Micah, and I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Micah chapter 5. Micah comes around, he's in the minor prophets, and Micah begins to prophesy about this little town called Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Bethlehem has a hope coming. The prophet Micah a few generations after David spoke of that and, 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 and was wondering and people probably looked at Bethlehem much as Micah said and said what could ever come out of Bethlehem. Jacob after the loss of his wife continued. He became a very wealthy man. He had much livestock and he spread his tent a little beyond the tower of Eder or Migdal Eater, the shepherd, or the, or the tower of the flock. You see, Bethlehem is, and, and these, it's about six miles from the outskirts of Jerusalem. As, as you know, Jerusalem sits on a hill, and one writer I read uh, began to say that, that if you were going to go through Galilee and then go into Judea, every step you took in Judea, you would have been going up because you're constantly uh, rising in altitude until you get to Jerusalem. But Bethlehem was on the outskirts there, and it had a great valley below it, and it had a lot of grass, and it was a great place to raise livestock. It was a great place to let your sheep graze. And I, The way we think of a shepherd is a little different, and, and, and I know I preached on the shepherd psalm and all of that, but you have to think at some point they didn't have just a little flock of you know 15 or 20 sheep. And I'll explain this in just a minute and give you a, a grand scale of how many sheep were really raised. It'll blow your mind, but just hang with me. They had flocks of hundreds and thousands of sheep. 
the, the, the idyllic view of the shepherd with the crook and walking in front of his sheep, although there were moments that happened, that's not entirely the way shepherds operated. They would let their sheep go out into the pasture and they would find a tall vantage point in which the shepherd could get on and overlook all of the sheep they had and there they would get a bird's eye view of what was happening from a distance. They could see if any wild animals were coming and they could communicate to each other and take care of those problems before they came. In doing so, they had erected a tower called the Tower of the Flock. This Tower of the Flock, this, this eater, this Migdal eater, it, it was a tower that they could literally climb up in. And look, you can research it on Google. I sh- probably should have had a picture of it that, on the screen that you could have seen, but they, they, they had that. Some 11 generations would come and go until Jacob's descendant David was born in the little town of Bethlehem. Some scholars say that David was possibly born in the, in the very spot that Jacob pitched his tent to mourn the loss of his wife, Rachel. And while we know one day David, he was destined to be king, but you cannot overlook the first part of David's life, David the shepherd. But really, if you truly begin to study it, you begin to realize that, Jacob, or, or that David was not just any shepherd. Because Bethlehem has a rich history of not being just a place where sheep were born, but a place in which the sheep that were born were destined to die in the temples and the ta- or the tabernacle and the temple that was coming. Bethlehem began to be a, a, a town where the sheep were there. Let me let me help you out. I told you I'd show you the scope of the flocks, you know. Have any of you ever thought about, you know, how in the world do they make enough turkeys to, to you know, for, for Christmas and, and Thanksgiving? I don't know if your mind thinks that way, but I do. You know, just, thank you. We're not going to talk about how they make turkeys. We'll, we'll talk about how they, they, they farm turkeys. Y'all mess me up. Now my ADD is going to catch on and I'm going to start thinking about turkeys. But you got to think, out of all of of St. Louis, a vast majority of the families and the homes will have a turkey. How do you get that many turkeys? I don't know if any of you, have any of you ever been around a chicken farm or a turkey farm? Have you ever seen that? You drive down the highway and you see these long, usually white, kind of squat looking buildings. And inside that one building will have some 40,000 to 70,000 chickens. And, and farms will have four or five or six or ten of them. And they stink to the high heavens. And I've been in a few of them and I've, I've got to see how they work. But, but I want to take you back and, remember, and remind you that it was, it was by, by the law that God gave Moses that every day, every morning and every night, a lamb would be sacrificed at the altar. Now the Jewish calendar is a little bit different than our calendar of 365 days and, and, and I was trying to understand it all and, and sometimes their years can vary in how many days they have depending on how it falls. So all I can tell you is that if they needed two lambs each day, two unblemished, perfect, spotless lambs, it's between, from what I read, 700 to almost 800 lambs a year that was needed for that. Somebody had to raise those sheep. 
Somebody had to watch those flocks. Somebody had to make sure they didn't break their leg or scratch themselves because that unblemished, spotless lamb is vital. But not only that, there were other sacrifices that were needed. But let me, let me break, you know, kind of expand your mind a little bit more. Passover. Do you remember Passover when, when, when they were told that, that every family would have to go and take a lamb and kill a lamb and, and, and paint it over their doorpost? Now, as they became a nomadic tribe, everybody owned a few sheep and they would have their own lamb. But by the time that David came around, they were city-fied folk. They lived in cities. They didn't have a lot of lambs around, and so they would have to buy a Passover lamb. They would have to go get a Passover lamb. And according to the census of David's time, it seems that there was 1,300,000 men above the age of 20. One suggested that that would say that in all of Israel there was a population of about 5 million people. In that, just a conservative estimate, if you will, would mean that that one day on Passover, 250,000 sheep would be sacrificed in homes and families all over. That was a lot of sheep. For those 250,000 sheep that were born, that meant you had to have a mommy and a daddy sheep. That meant there were other sheep that didn't pass the grade. There were other sheep that got bruised or hurt and weren't able to be used. There were literally probably millions of sheep that dotted the pasture side there in Bethlehem. David was not just any shepherd, but David was a priestly shepherd who along with others was tasked with making sure they had enough lambs to sacrifice when needed. They understood that when, when David would say things like the, the 23rd Psalm, you know, the, the, thou anointest my head with oil, and it's a medicinal understanding, David realized that he had to protect those sheep, and he had to make sure when they were born they were not injured, and he had to make sure that through life they were okay. And so David would have been very familiar with that tower of the flock, that, that Migdal El Eder that he could go up and look out and see. He knew sacrifice. I've told the story of my wife and I going over to uh, uh, Tonga, one of the islands there in the South Pacific, and we were sitting there with the missionary and the dignitaries of the, of the church there in Tonga, and they put a whole little pig in front of us, and I was in heaven. You know, a roast pig that... You know, it was just perfect, and I was, I was ready. We were going to eat that pig, and there was this little about eight-year-old boy that was standing behind us, and he had been serving us, and he looked at my wife, and he said, he said, Sister Buford, that was my pig. He had raised it. Of course, my wife was done. She, she started crying. I know that's hard for you to believe that she would ever cry, and she was crying, and, 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 and but, but what, that boy was excited because he had raised that pig, and, and he had raised it for a purpose. He knew that one day that pig was going to feed someone and, and much less be able to feed the missionary or the, or the ministry family. He was excited. David, can you imagine David looking out over those flocks, and he knew what the, the end result of many of those sheep were going to be. They were going to have to die, innocent little lambs. They were going to have to die on a sacrificial altar. They were going to have to die to plant the blood over homes so that they could be saved. And so it was that he realized that sacrifice that was there. 900 
or so years past the life of David, you walk back into the little town of Bethlehem. Where Luke says that because of the census that Caesar Augustus and those declared that Joseph and Mary are there and there's no room and they're trying to find some place to, li- to, to, to stay. The Bible says they go to a stable. The Bible says they, lay, they, they put this newborn baby in a manger and they're there and then angels appear to the shepherds and the shepherds say this is going to be a sign to you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. I've been thinking about that a little bit because as you've known by now, I, I don't like just taking the word of God just simply in, at, at, you know, just to, to see it as dull, dry ink on a page. I, I want to see the story behind it. I want to see how it unfolds. And in my mind, I'm hearing the shepherds hear the voice of the angel that says, go find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Did the shepherds just go to every little stable and outbuilding and knock on every door? It would have taken a long time to find and, and, and open up this stable and open up this barn and open up this place. And, and were there any other babies wrapped in swaddling clothes? Well, sure there were. Swaddling clothes was, was the natural attire of a newborn baby. If a baby wasn't wrapped in swaddling clothes, it was abandoned. You can read that in some of the minor prophets and how, how God compared Israel to an abandoned baby thrown out in the field that had never been salted, meaning that it had, been, had salt rubbed on him, which is a, a, a type of medicinal quality and never been bandaged or, or swaddled. Those shepherds there. Again, I want to remind you that they were shepherds in Bethlehem. They were shepherds who were tasked with keeping the flocks of those sacrificial lambs. Shepherds that were well versed in the Passover. Shepherds that were well versed in how many of their lambs had 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 to die. They were shepherds who watched over the temple flock day and night. They had to protect them from the robber and the wolf, the bear and the lion. And they had climbed many times that tower of Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, that place that they could watch over the sheep. But in some of my research, and this is where there'll be others that will will will, will argue or say, and I'm I'm not saying that, that we know this for a fact. I'm just wanting to tell you a few things that I found. There's an incredible book, The Life and Times of Jesus Christ by Albert. Edersheim, I believe is how you, how you say it, written back in 1855. I, I have a book, and I went, and got, went home and I, I picked it up, but it was Fleetwood's Life of Christ. I have a book in my library that was from 1854. And I thought it was the same book, but I have a newer copy of this book by Albert. And Albert uh, uh, Edersheim, he, he begins to write, and he puts some things together, and he says that in this tower of the flock, there was a room at the bottom that was designated for the delivery and the protection of special lambs that were needed for the temple. That when a lamb was going to be born, they would bring it into that bottom of that tower, that Migdal Elder, and they would would protect it. And when that little lamb was born, they would even wrap it up in, in some clothes, some swaddling clothes, if you will, so that lamb wouldn't injure itself in struggling. And they, they would kind of take care of that lamb until they could bring it to the, the place of sacrifice. When the angels told the 
the shepherds to go find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. I wonder if perhaps they realized they knew exactly where to look. I want to invite your attention to the book of Micah chapter 4. We read Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 that says, But thou, O Bethlehem, you know, even though you're little from you is going to come forth the one who is to be the ruler of Israel. But can I take you one chapter previous? And I want to show you in Micah chapter 4 and verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, To you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. But you and thou, O Migdal Eder, tower of the flock. There are many uh, scholars and many people that, that, that know far more than I know that say you've got to connect Uh, Micah 4 and 8 and Micah 5 and 2 and put them together that they weren't just talking about Bethlehem as a town but they were talking about Bethlehem as a place where sacrificial lambs were born and so there are many commentators and many scholars that begin to say that very possibly Jesus was born in the lower part of that tower of of the flock in the same little manger that many sheep destined for the sacrificial system were born. That when the angel said to them, go and look and find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, they didn't go waste all night trying to find the right stable. They there, There's no talk right here of the star that led them to the to the stable. You don't find that star in this portion of scripture. And, and so they didn't have any other sign except go find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And they went and they found him. I, I, I begin to look at this and perhaps these shepherds they knew the prophecy of Micah They had read the scrolls or at least heard it preached. They knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And they also knew that Micah said the the king was coming to that tower of the flock. The Messiah, the sacrificial lamb, born in the same place that every other unspotted lamb would be born. I I, I love the story of, and and we'll talk about it a little bit in uh, uh, Christmas Day, but... You know, the first person that recognized the divinity of Jesus was his cousin, John. Mary was just just expecting, and she went, obviously she's just, her mind is blown. How can I, a virgin, have a child? What am I going to tell Joseph? And she goes and she finds her cousin Elizabeth and Zachariah, and and they're a little bit older, or, you know, a uh, uh, John that's in the womb is a couple months older than what Jesus is and the Bible says that as soon as Mary entered into the presence of Elizabeth who was carrying John the Baptist, John the Baptist leaped in her womb. John the Baptist and Jesus, much like some of our kids, I, I, I laugh and, and say that, that Jonah and Zane or, or Zeke, Jonah and Zeke are going to get in a lot of trouble as they grow up. You know, when you get them so close to the same age and we always see, we always see 
John the Baptist, we, we, know, we know they were cousins. We know they were born close to the same age. But then we just kind of throw it all out, and then we only see John the Baptist as the guy that's in camel hair and eating honey and locusts and preaching. And then all of a sudden Jesus walks in and he says, Ah, oh, behold the, the one, and I'm not worthy to unlace his shoes. And then John the Baptist leaves. But John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. As I was kind of doing some study and, and reading this and kind of watching it all unfold, there was a writer that that kind of said, can you imagine John the Baptist and Jesus growing up together? Now, Don, I've been around you and your family and your friends, and you got a nickname for everybody that you know. It's, it's Don Don, Little Ronnie. And one scholar put it this way. Perhaps John the Baptist knew that Jesus was born in that tower of, of the flock. And he'd say, all right, little lamb. Much like teenagers do, they find that one little weakness and you circle around like wolves. Carry, all right, little lamb. Jesus would punch him back and say, stop. That perhaps the reason John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of the world was not just an arbitrary statement but John the Baptist at that point of his life began to realize how everything had fit together the reason he chose those words is because he knew that this was going to be the ultimate Passover lamb the one in whose blood that was shed would, would save the world from their sin that born swaddled raised and delivered over to those that would sacrifice him on the cross and for once and for all the Bible says to Mary fear not Mary you found favor with God and behold you'll conceive in your womb and shall bring forth a son and call his name Jesus He'll be great and be called the son of the highest. The Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There shall be no end. That lamb was born perhaps at the tower of the flock. It was destined to become the lamb for sinner slain. Isaiah said he'd be wounded for my transgression. He'd be bruised for an our iniquities. The chastisement of my peace would be upon him and with his stripes we shall be healed a lamb without spot without blemish a lamb in whom they never broke a bone even though the crucifixion almost always included broken bones but for that one it wasn't going to because it would have denied that sacrificial lamb because bones couldn't be broken in the killing of the sacrificial lamb from that lowly manger that lamb born would become Jacob's comforter, Israel's king, the great shepherd, and the world's Messiah forever and ever. He came wrapped in swaddling clothes. One of his last acts before he had a glorified body as they wrapped him in grave clothes swaddled him once again 
when that tomb opened, he did left those clothes behind. And the words echoed on the cross still echo today. It is finished. And from that moment on, there would never be need. Now, there may have been other sacrifices, but there never was a need for a sacrifice again because Jesus Christ, the lamb for sinners slain, was born so that he could fulfill that Passover once and for all. And the blood that they applied over the doorposts, that blood's now applied in the waters of baptism and the calling of the name of Jesus in our lives. And it all started in a little town called Bethlehem. Would you stand? I know some of what I said today. We are never going to know, you know, all of the exact circumstances. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven. But the Bible does show us a few clues that may lean toward that. Oh, tower of the flock, your king is coming. Bethlehem, out of you will come the one who will be your savior, your Messiah. And then we see it take place in that little starry night on Bethlehem. And then those shepherds. Why pick shepherds? Well, the reason they picked shepherds is because those shepherds were pretty, pretty familiar with Passover lambs. Because God doesn't do anything by accident. And those signs were there for a purpose. I wonder if we could close our eyes. Would you let once again the story of his nativity begin to speak? Would you be thankful for all the, 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 the ways and, and the lengths that he's came? in order for that you might receive life and that more abundantly as they begin to sing.